You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thank you, Dash and Shay. This is what we call in marketing the old bait and switch. We start you with Dash and Shay, who are pleasant to look upon, and then you get me who is uh, struggling with laryngitis, trying not to lose my voice. Apparently, this time of year, because of the intersection of seasonal allergies, off weather, and an inferior breeding pool of genes, I lose my voice every February-ish. So I apologize that you get to listen to what must sound like, oh, I don't know, if you put your head in a Ziploc bag and listen to a rock slide. This is kind of what I imagine you're having to endure. So I'm sorry, but I am delighted that you're here. My name is Eric Barton, and I get to be the pastor of the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church. And we don't think it's an accident that you're here. We believe that God in his sovereignty has divinely directed your steps that you would be here and that you would hear from his spirit in his word among his people. And that's what we're here to do is to unpack God's word and ask that he would speak to us in the present tense. And when he does that, it often elicits and provokes questions. And so... You've already heard Dash mention the phone number that we have set up where you can send in some questions. I was preaching the first service. I had all sorts of questions. I was texting away. Like, what did you mean by that? That didn't make any sense. That's not even biblical. So you can do the same thing. We've already received several texts from the first service, mostly from elders. Thanks, guys. Appreciate that. But here we are in our Spring 18 series on the life of David, this shepherd, warrior, poet, and king. And it's been a lot of fun for me to get to preach a narrative Old Testament text because we find ourselves, candidly, a lot of times in the New Testament dealing with epistles that really speak to who the church is, what the church is supposed to do. But it's a lot of fun to look at the Old Testament and see how the world was in birth pains, the Bible says, in preparation, in eager anticipation of the coming of Messiah, the one who would fulfill all the longing, all the need, all the desire, who would resolve all the conflict that exists in the Old Testament. Now, speaking of all of that conflict and all that tension, and I don't know what sort of circumstance you exist in, but my sense is all of us are dealing with some sort of disappointment, some hurt, some uncertainty, some doubt, some pain, some suffering. And so perhaps if you're at all like me, you've you've driven around and you've thought, my goodness, the things I'm hearing on the news or the things that I'm hearing in my extended family or just in the world, and ah, what, what, what does this world need? And maybe if you've allowed yourself to sort of ride that thought process through, you've said, well, what, what does this world need? This world needs peace. Well, that's not going to happen. Uh, what this world needs is, uh, what this world needs is Jesus because that's always the answer. Of course it's Jesus. And we can say that because we're now we're in a church and so we say Jesus is the answer. Jesus is, of course, the answer for what this world needs. And yet, Jesus has come 2,000 years ago. He will come again. I know not when. And in the meantime, he has sent his spirit to indwell his people. God literally could not be closer to his people in this age than he is now because he literally indwells his people. And yet, 
despite his presence, by his spirit, the abundance of his word and his people, there is still so much fear, uncertainty, and doubt. People who have suffering and pain, people who are still far from God, who are trying to accomplish and achieve a godness apart from God. So what does this world need? I'm going to contend, and it's sort of our, uh, our big idea for the morning through this uh, a bit of a strange passage, I don't mind telling you. Here's sort of our big idea for the morning, and it goes like this. What the world needs is grown-ups. That's what the world needs. That doesn't sound like a very spiritual uh, levy there, but I want to unpack here in a little while what do I mean by grown-up. I don't merely mean people of a certain age. Oh, no, no, I mean vastly more than that. In fact, give you a little bit of a sneak preview. I think the Apostle Paul writes about being a grown-up. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, Paul writes this. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. I was childish. That's what he's saying. But a transition occurred. Something happened when I became a man, a grown-up, I gave up my childish ways. I would contend that what this world needs is grown-ups, people who have given up childish ways. And I believe that this morning our text is going to show us how that happens. So I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 23. 1 Samuel chapter 23, and I want to remind us very quickly, very briefly, that all of this series that we're talking about, the life of David, it's not a collection of morals and fables that we read the story about David doing such and such and think, okay, I need to go and try to do that myself as well. It's not about that. All of these stories about David, in fact, all of the stories of the Old Testament are pushing to, preparing us for the coming of the Christ, the arrival of the anointed one. How do we know that? The interpretive key for this entire sermon series is given to us by Jesus himself in Luke 24, 27. You don't have to turn there. Keep your finger there if you want to in 1 Samuel 23. But Jesus, after his resurrection, tells the disciples, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's all the Old Testament scripture, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He says, it's all about me. It's all about me. And when you misinterpret Old Testament scriptures mistakenly about you, you're going to run into all these inconsistencies, all these incongruities that are going to produce a functional madness. But when you recognize that all of those narratives are preparing you for me, then you begin to see the glory and the grandeur of God. So we've been studying this boy named David. I've learned a lot about David so far. For starters, he was a redhead and good-looking. See, this is a miracle. This is the Bible. Things happen in the Bible that are miraculous. A good-looking redhead. David was confident, not in his own strength and his own abilities. David was confident in God's plan for his life. We're told that he slayed the lion and the bear. He kills a giant by stoning, which is the punishment for blasphemy. He does all these wonderful things. He's a shepherd boy. He's anointed king in his late teens, but we think maybe by the age of 20, and he's not going to actually ascend to the throne of Israel as God's anointed one for 10 more years. Cray-cray King Saul just won't be a good boy and die. He's still on the throne. He's still reigning. He's still ruling, and he's causing all sorts of problems. 
Now, he's tried to kill David by throwing his spear at him several times. You thought your father-in-law was bad. Woo! Saul's son, Jonathan, is David's best friend, and David has also married Saul's daughter. Thanksgiving was a weird time in the Saul house, okay? Well, finally, what we talked about last week is David has had to flee Saul because Saul is making several attempts on his life. David is the recipient of God's Holy Spirit coming on him, guiding, directing him, whereas Saul is the recipient of an evil spirit that is tormenting him, confusing to him, deceiving him, and lying to him. So we see these things going in different directions. Now, last week, we finished off in chapter 22 with an absolutely horrifying scene. We finished chapter 2, and there's a a man from the tribe of Edom, not an Israelite. He's from Edom, a descendant of Esau, the kinds of people that would sell their birthright for a pot of stew. And he happens to be a convert because it's economically uh, beneficial for him to work for Saul. And this man commits what's called a harem against the people of Nob, this little town just to the north of Jerusalem. He commits a harem. It's a holocaust. He puts 85 priests to death and their families and their livestock, kills them all. It's absolutely shocking. But one escapes. There's a priest named Abiathar, and he escapes. And we're going to begin reading this story now. Pick up there. In 1 Samuel chapter 23, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Believe it or not, we're going to walk through the entire chapter, and I want to break this up into three little subsections. So if you want to make a quick note, verses 1 through 13, you can make a little note. Verses 1 through 13 are a divine access. We're going to see how David is experiencing divine access. So chapter 23, verse 1. Now, they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. There's a whole lot in this. Some people come to David and they say, David, 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 the Philistines, they've come. They've come from the Mediterranean coast in the west and they've come up over the Judean hills and they're attacking Keilah and they're robbing the threshing floors. It may sound like, well, it's just a marauding raid, no big whoop. It's a really big deal. Keilah is very close to Jerusalem. It means the Philistines have gotten brazen and are very near the capital. If they steal the grain from the threshing floors, then the people of Keilah will starve next season. It's very serious. What's also fascinating is these people do not go to King Saul. He's still the king of Israel, but he's virtually no good to anyone around him. You know why? Because he acts childishly. Always, selfishly, impetuously, impulsively, he acts childishly. And so they come to David, whom they hope will be the grown-up in the room. David, David, what are we going to do? So chapter 23, verse 2, Therefore David inquired of Yahweh, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, How dare you speak to me? I'm God and you're a shepherd. No, no, he didn't say that. No, I didn't say it at all. And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. Wow. But David's men said to him, behold, we are afraid, because that's what you say when you're afraid. Lo, and hearken on, I doth fear. No, this is the narrative summary. They went, what? The Philistines? Are you kidding me? Saul's trying to kill us, and the Philistines are bigger, better, stronger, smarter, and they have more weaponry. (laughs) I don't know. And these are the dirty dozens that have now gathered to David, and they're frightened. And so David says, verse 4, Then David inquired of the Lord again, 
And the Lord answered him, Now leave me alone, David. I'm very busy, and I don't have time for your small problems. No, it doesn't say that. And if your Bible says that, get a different one. And yet, that's candidly and transparently, frequently how I assume my prayers will be heard by God. And so I just don't. God, I know I asked you about this that one time in seventh grade, and I'm back again. But you, listen, you're busy. You got that thing happening in Sudan. Uh, you know, never mind. Because I just assume, and that's because I grossly, functionally, practically misunderstand grace and how crazy about me my God is. But David gets this answer. He inquired the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them. Not the livestock, that's a waste. Struck the Philistines with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. How in the world was David able to inquire of the Lord? Divine access. Ah, verse 6 is a little insertion. A little shoehorn in the narrative to help us understand what's going on here. Verse 6. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, who had been murdered by, by Saul's men... He had fled to David to Keilah. He had come down with an ephod in his hand. An ephod was sort of the priestly garment and gadgetry that the priest would use to inquire of God. What actually is going on there? We don't know. It's all this priestly garbage, and they had a, a cool turban kind of hat and all this stuff, and the breastplate had some gems on it. Many people think that the gems would, like, spin, and you could, like, it was almost kind of like rolling the dice. I don't know, it was like an abacus, or it was like you played Tetris on that thing. I don't know, but this is how people think that they would inquire the Lord. They would spin that puppy, and God would, I, I don't know. Maybe God just texted that thing, and it showed up. I don't know, but he has the ephod, and somehow he inquires of Yahweh, not at the tabernacle, and God is pleased to answer. Even though this is a non-normative, ill-prescribed way to approach God, <laughs> God says, I'll speak to you anyway. God answers him. So that's what we see in verse 6 in this divine access. Now, when it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, Saul said, Oh, goody, David saved us from the Philistines. Praise God. No, he's, he's a child. God has given David into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Saul doesn't care about his own people. He's gone way around the bend. He thinks, oh, God has delivered my enemy to me. A gross misinterpretation, misunderstanding of God. And Saul summoned all the people to war, to go down to Keilah, to besiege David and his men. And David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Let's have another conversation with the Almighty. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are sovereign. You are king. Not Saul, not me. You are the God of Israel. Your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, O Saul's coming. What? What's that all about? No, no, I just did a good thing. I saved your people. You owe me, God. Oh, wait, no, that's actually how I pray, not David. Okay? Verse 12, then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, 
they will surrender you. What? David just saved these people from the Philistines. What in the world? Why would they betray the man that just saved them? Well, remember, we're not talking about a massive geographical area here. The people of Keilah were probably the ones that sent for David because they were in dire straits and they weren't hearing anything back from Saul. David delivers them, but now they hear that Saul's coming. They have also almost certainly heard that maybe just a week or so prior, Saul and his henchmen had butchered an entire village at Nob. And they don't want any part of that. Understandably so. And so God says, yes, they're going to betray you, which if I'm David, my reaction is, that's not fair. But David doesn't react that way. Verse 13, then David and his men, who were about 600 now, he keeps on gathering more of these dirty dozens to himself, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. David experiences and enjoys divine access. Now then, we're going to turn a little bit of a corner here. And in verses 14 to 18, you can write down divine encouragement. Divine encouragement. In verse 14, and David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness. Now, we don't know exactly where that is. We assume it's, again, in the caves of Adullam, these massive, intricate cave structures that could support hundreds and hundreds of people for long periods of time, probably where they are, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Saul doesn't give up, but God will not let down his guard. So verse 15, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh, and Jonathan, his BFF, the son of the king, Saul's son rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. This is so good. How does God often encourage his people? With people. With people. Yeah, but people, they're, they're the worst. They're just, I wish God would just show up and like comfort me. He did. Because his spirit dwells in that other person. This is divine encouragement. He strengthened his hand in God. And Jonathan said to David, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. This is such a good model of friendly encouragement and counsel. Not to say, hey, there's nothing wrong. Suck it up, big boy. Doesn't say that. Rub some dirt in it. It'll be fine. No. Don't be afraid. God has promised. You will be king, and I am with you. To remind someone of the promises that God has made and to affirm and to assure them that you will be with them. It's what we need. It's what I need to hear. It's what you need to hear. It's what we need to say to those who are, who are suffering. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan Ominously, it says, went home. They will never see each other again. This will be the last time they're ever together. But Jonathan says, I am with you. You are the rightful king. Well then, verses 19 to 29, you can put down divine provision. Divine or divine providence, either one. Divine providence, divine provision. 
Verse 19, then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh, on the hill of Hakilah, which is south of Yeshimon? Yeshimon uh, basically means the desolate place. Three words for desert in Hebrew. There is Midbar, there is Tziah, and there is Yeshimon. Yeshimon is sort of like uh, the moon if God was mad at the moon. It's that sort of landscape. There's nothing that grows. It's completely desolate and barren. David has gone south of Yeshimon. That's a bad place to be. It's kind of like the Texas panhandle, I think. He is down uh, south of Yeshimon. Now, come down, O king, said the Ziphites to Saul, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender David into the king's hand. Saul said, may you be blessed by the Lord, Oh, this is, this is God's providence for me. Saul, you misunderstand. You're acting childishly. For you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure. Make, double check this. No one see the place where David's foot is and who has seen him there. For it is told to me that he is very cunning. See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he's in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah to the south of Yeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, both of these guys have intelligence networks everywhere. So he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon, and when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. The tension in his building. The armies are getting closer to one another. Saul is tightening the noose around David. Verse 26 is sort of the climax of the entire chapter. Saul went on one side of the mountain, presumably up the west side of the slope. And David and his men on the other side of the mountain, on the east side of the slope. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul as Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. David's about to surrender the high ground. He's on the east side of the slope heading down. Saul is coming up the west side. He's about to have him in a trap. What's going to happen? How is this going to end for God's promised anointed one? Verse 27, suddenly there are screams, shouts, a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. <laughs> it's funny. It's funny. Oh, see, you might not remember that at the very beginning of chapter 23, the Philistines are the bad guys. And David goes and destroys the Philistines, saves Keilah from the hand of the Philistines. But God is sovereign. And now God's going to use the Philistines themselves to save David. Ah, in a great grand irony, God uses even his enemies for his own purpose. The Philistines begin to be the deliverer of David. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape, which is going to prepare us for another Rock of Escape for a better David much later. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. David is growing up. David is getting rid of his childish ways. He's beginning to be more and more like 
a grown-up, the person in the room, the person in the band or the group to whom everybody looks at and says, what are we going to do? David's beginning to be the grown-up. Now, I want to cheat a little bit, and I want to fast forward to another text in 2 Samuel. And I want to show you what this is going to look like as all of this season, this preparatory time in David's life, has readied him to be the king. If you will, go to 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5, and we're going to go all the way up to verse 17. And I want to show you how David begins to demonstrate what it's like to be a grown-up. Now he's the king. Samuel has died. Saul has died. David is the king, and he's on one last campaign to eradicate the enemies of God, the Philistines, from the land. So we see in 2 Samuel chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. They didn't like this. They kind of liked cray-cray King Saul because he was a child and a fool and not a very good leader or king or military commander. But this David had killed his ten thousands. And they hear that he is the king, and their plan is to nip this in the bud. And so all of the Philistines muster. You get the sense that all five Philistine cities empty and muster together. They went up to search for David, but David heard of it, and he went down to the stronghold. Yet again, we think he goes down to the caves of Adullam, this place that is dirty and gritty, and yet God had already had him there for such a time as this. He knew the way. He knew how to survive and thrive in that cave context. Now, the Philistines had come up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. Now, you're supposed to shriek in terror when you hear that. They should not be this close. Saul had obviously done a terrible job of beating the Philistines back. The valley of Rephaim is not even two miles southwest of Jerusalem. It's just right there. It's imagine like the armies of the enemies of Tyler mustered in Rose Stadium. Well, there's all those folks from Chandler and Brownsboro, and they've all gathered in Rome. I don't know. The, the enemies of this area are all gathered, and they're just maybe two miles, if that far, away from Jerusalem. The Philistines should not be this close. It's very frightening. They've, they've penetrated past the gate cities that protect Jerusalem, and now they're at the very brink. Verse 19, And David instinctively inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. I love these kinds of passages because they answer the questions that we all have. Who did it? Who's responsible? Who's victory? Is it God's or is it David's? Uh-huh. God has done it, and yet David's hand is the tool. It's the instrumentality of it. So verse 20, and David came to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. Really? Well, yeah. And God did it, and David did it. It's both and. We don't have to try to assign responsibility to one party or the other. David defeated them there, and he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, he named, therefore the name of that place is called Baal Perazim. It means the Lord has busted through. David names this place God Smasherton is what he names this. God did a thing. He opened up a can of, of breakthrough on them. And God did a victory. And yet it was, of course, David and his army who gripped the sword and hacked the pieces. God did it. 
and David was also responsible. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. They got whooped idolless. That's a bad whooping. They left all their trinkets and gadgets and their little pagan idols and the whole thing, and they took off, and David and his crew gathered them up. This is an economic boon for them. But the story's not over. The Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. We don't know how long this took, but they come back again, and they muster. So verse 23, and David said, we've done this before, we'll do it again. And he attacked them. And no, that's actually not what he said. That's what I would have done, childishly. But David is beginning to demonstrate his grown-upness. David inquired of the Lord, and he said, you shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. This is a tricky translation. We're not real sure how best to say this because it's an odd phrase. But what God is basically telling David is, last time you went full frontal assault and you whooped them because I broke out before you. Not this time. This time you're going to present yourself before them and they're going to see you coming. But this time you're going to turn your backs to them and you're going to flee. And it's going to look to them like you're retreating. And David's generals had to have been thinking, are you kidding me? We were afraid of him the first time, but then we whipped him, and then we whipped him again. God's got to be with us. Let's just attack. Let's not be cowards. Let's do this the way we've always done this. But David inquires of the Lord. God's too created to do the victory the same way twice. He says, no, you show yourselves to them and then turn and flee, and then separate and dissipate and go around to their flank, go around behind them in the balsam trees. And then verse 24, it is awesome. <laughs> and when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, say what? When you hear the sound of the marching on the tops of the trees, I don't know who you think marches on the tops of trees, not Philistines, not David's dirty dozens. No, 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 no. The armies of the hosts of God that will one day be commanded by the ultimate Lord Sabaot, the best David. When you hear the sound of the marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. By the way, as a side note, that's a bad day if you're the Philistine general. Like, I got a plan this time, boys. And suddenly Yahweh and the angels of God show up and they smote you down. I didn't see that one coming. And David did as the Lord commanded. Always a good idea. And struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. Woo! He whipped them to the coast is what that means. He pushes them all the way back to the Mediterranean. The Philistines never have strength nor muster again. Now, David could have done exactly what he probably instinctively wanted to do, what his generals wanted him to do. But if he had done that, he would have missed the blessing and the awesome demonstration of the power of God sending those who march on treetops and seeing God in his power swoop down and exterminate and eradicate the incoming Philistines. Wow. David's beginning to show us what it looks like to be a grown-up. So what I'm going to say yet again, what the world needs is grown-ups. So how do we become grown-ups? What actually is the biblical definition of a grown-up? Let me give you three quick implications here. Number one, a grown-up in God's eyes 
is someone who involves God in every part of their life. A grown-up in God's eyes is not someone who allows themselves to go on autopilot. A grown-up in God's eyes is someone who involves God in every single facet and aspect of their life. You might say, well, you know, David, he was the anointed king, and, and he got to ask God specific questions, and some dude in a special dress came up, and they flicked the stones or something, and God answered. God doesn't deal that way with me. No, he doesn't, and you don't need him to because you're not the king of Israel, and you don't have to have a priest intercede for you. We live in the age when God, by his spirit, indwells every believer. We live in an age where we're not trying to discover what God wants us to do. We are what God wants us to do. It's an amazing time to be alive. A grown-up in God's eyes is someone who involves God in every part of their life. We can do that because Jesus really is the answer. Jesus himself is our divine access. Because of Jesus, we are in Christ. He is in the Father. The Spirit is in us. We approach the throne of God's grace with confidence. It does not mean we have to stop what we're doing and suddenly bust into old King James. We just have open conversation and dialogue with our God. That's what a grown-up does. Jesus is our divine encouragement he comes alongside in his word and through prayer. He says, listen, I am with you. I am the answer to all of God's promises. The answer is yes, and I will never leave nor forsake you. And by the way, my father knows this about you, except his father's not cray-cray King Saul. His father is Yahweh, the God of the cosmos. He's a better Jonathan. He is our divine provision. He is the one who meets the enemy that we all have, sin and death and depravity and our proneness to wander. And he says, I have met that enemy and I have defeated the enemy. He is the one who has used death as own game against him and given us the blessing of life. As Jonathan said, I will be with you even unto death. Jesus is the same. Second point. The result of prayer is not the point. The praying is the point. <laughs> it's not what God says when he answers. It's my consistent, persistent, right, and regular recognition of God. That's what godly grown-ups do. We stay in persistent contact. We stop asking, God, do you want me to go right or left? What, is, what do you want me to do here? And we begin to recognize, as Oswald Chambers says, that we are God's will. And whatever we do because of our constant contact, our regular right recognition of God, whatever we do is precisely what God wants us to do and to be. The point of the prayer is not the answer. The point of the prayer is the prayer. This is what it means to be a grown-up, someone who regularly and rightly is in contact with God. And so the third point is actually pretty simple. It may seem like a little bit of a, of a pastoral imperative I'm going to hang out on you, but... It goes like this. It's just two words. Grow up! Because this is what Paul's prayer for his church was. Not that they would be more boring and mature and stately. No, 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 no. That they would grow up. Meaning, practice his presence. Because what this world needs is grown-ups. 
those who were in regular and right recognition and dialogue with God. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul says this, But rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. That's God's will for your life and for the world around you. What this world needs is grown-ups. And that is a possibility. It is, in fact, God's prescribed will for our lives because he has sent the answer, Jesus, a better David, a better high priest, Abiathar. <laughs> Abiathar, the high priest, has to put on a special garb and some gadgetry and ask God, but not Jesus, who Hebrew says is the best high priest. He lives to intercede on our behalf day and night. This Jesus has come. He is a king who cares. He is a champion who has died, and he is a big brother who is proud. And so I just want to invite all of you this morning to recall the potentiality of being a grown-up. If you're not a believer this morning, then I just want you to know that the very best you can hope for is the life of cray-cray King Saul. And whether you know it or not, you may be a very good and decent and moral person, but at the end of the day, the best you can accomplish and achieve is destruction. So I invite you to believe that Jesus is who he says he was. He did what he said he would do. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. He fulfilled the demands of the law, which is perfection. And he offers us that finished track record or scorecard, if you will, and the wages of sin is death. And he says, I will pay that in full. Give me the bill. And now that you have been the recipient of my spirit, let us walk by the spirit so we will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. That's what it means to be a grown-up, and that's what this world needs. For the rest of you, man, you've been a Christian since the world went from black and white to color. Praise God. But perhaps you are still walking around in childishness, simply reverting to your own autopilot. And I just want to say to you, brother and sister, this world is deprived of the presence of God in your life. Grow up. Grow up. As though Jesus was living his life through you, because that is his desire. May it be. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and to one another. And I do pray, Father, if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, that you would move irresistibly by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, that they would step out of death and into life, that they would believe, maybe aside and outside of their capacity to understand, explain, or figure out, but they would simply believe. And would you give them courage and boldness to speak to someone they know and love and trust about the finished work of your son and what it means that the spirit takes up residence. For the rest of us, Father, would you remind us of the opportunity and the privilege to be a royal priesthood, to be grown-ups in this world, because that is what this world needs. So would you help us to keep our eyes upon Jesus, to look full in his wonderful face such that the things of this world go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We pray all these things, Father, the only way we can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, thanks so much for being here. Let me ask you to stand for a word of benediction. I want to remind you and invite you, if you've never come to Discover Bethel, we want you to come downstairs to the second floor. We're having Olivetto. You can have lunch with us. You may be thinking to yourself, self, I'm really too much of a big deal to go do that. You're not. Or you're maybe thinking, I'm not a big enough deal. Not true either. We want you to come be a part of Discover Bethel. Also, if you have never been 
baptized. We want to talk with you about that. We want to make sure that you have the opportunity to do that. I'm going to leave us with this benediction, and then we will be dismissed. Now, may our God who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ, may he equip you with every good work, and may you grow up. God bless you. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.